Have you ever heard of a man named Benjamin Keach? He was one of the um, leading early Reformed or particular Baptists in England in the mid to late 1600s. He was instrumental in the development of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. And he wrote, or at least was involved with the writing of um, a catechism that's since become known as Keech's Catechism. In fact, when it was still illegal in England during those tumultuous 1600s, he published a small children's book. He named it The Child's Instructor, or A New and Easy Primer. And for writing this distinctly Protestant book... um, He was arrested, jailed, fined, and pilloried. He was put in stocks in public for several hours where passersby could mock and ridicule him. He was also the first to introduce congregational singing into Reformed Baptist churches. In fact, just listen to the titles of some of his hymnals or at least some of the books that his hymns were published in. At this time especially, hymns were were essentially just poetry that they they would sing to a few standard and familiar tunes. The earliest uh, hymnal or book that he wrote with these hymns in it was called War with the Powers of Darkness. The fourth edition was published in 1676. A little bit later, nearly 300 hymns by Keach, by just him, were published in, in 1691 under the title of Spiritual Melody. This was a follow-up to a work entitled Tropogalia, a key to open scripture metaphors in true volumes. His Distressed Zion Relieved, or The Garment of Praise for the Spirit of Heaviness, was published in London in 1689. It was mainly in blank verse. It was dedicated to William and Mary, and it was written in praise of Protestantism against Roman Catholicism. In 1691, he published God's Worship, or singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs proved to be a holy ordinance, the breach repaired in of Jesus Christ. Typically Puritan titles. And then to save the best for last, I think, his final work appeared in 1696 and had the incredible title, A Feast of Fat Things, containing several scripture songs and hymns. If I ever write a hymnal, it's going to be called A Feast of Fat Things. (laughs) But I want to tell you a quick story about his son, Elias Keach. Elias Keach was a a wild and rebellious son, even the only son of, of who was probably the most well-known Baptist pastor of the day, at least around England. And in 1686, Elias made his way to Philadelphia. He was 19. He came to the colonies to escape his father and mother's discipline, to make his fortune and to prove that he did not need them, and he, most importantly, did not need their religion. But interestingly, in in order to gain acceptance in the colonies and to gain a little bit of respect, he started to dress like a clergyman. 
When it was learned that he was the son of the illustrious Benjamin Keach, he was immediately invited to preach. So here he is, 19 years old, walking around Philadelphia, dressed like clergy, the son of Benjamin Keach, and so he was invited to preach. And so an eager congregation gathered to hear his sermon. He was elegantly dressed in his ministerial coat and and those white bands that the ministers wore. And historians believe he probably used one of his father's sermons and he began to preach. About halfway through the sermon, he suddenly stopped short. And, And by the look on his face, people assumed that he'd been seized with some kind of sudden illness. But the reality was that he was he was suddenly shut up with the enormity of his hypocrisy and his sin. Soon the people there gathered around him and they asked the cause of his fear and he burst into tears in the middle of church, in the middle of his sermon. He confessed his fraud and he threw himself upon the mercy of God and he pleaded for the pardon of all of his sins. He immediately traveled to a place called Cold Springs where there was a church, actually the first Baptist church established in Pennsylvania, and he poured out his heart to the pastor named Thomas Dugan. This aged Baptist pastor lovingly took him by the hand and led him to Christ. Elias presented himself to the church as a a candidate for baptism and membership. And after hearing his testimony and and being convinced of the genuineness of his experience, he was baptized by Pastor Dugan. Not long after that, the church recognized his extraordinary skills at at public speaking and and they ordained him to to the gospel ministry and sent him out to preach Jesus and the resurrection. So he returned to Philadelphia where he began to preach with great power and he baptized several converts. In 1688, he established the Lower Dublin Baptist Church, which would become the the mother of of, of several Baptist churches and from which would emerge the the Philadelphia Baptist Association, which is actually the oldest in America. It's still in existence. It said that Elias Keech's zeal to preach the gospel could not be contained in one church. He traveled extensively preaching throughout the the mid-Atlantic region especially. His ministry continued to prosper and grow until uh, eventually what happened was the members of those churches began to squabble, began to argue about the laying on of hands after baptism, began to argue about predestination, the singing of psalms, yes or no, and so forth. And shortly after those controversies arose, Keach resigned his pastoral duty, and in 1689, he returned to London. After being reunited with his family, he organized a church in London at Ailes Street, Goodman Fields, where he preached to massive crowds, and in nine months, he baptized 130 souls into the fellowship of the church. In the late 1600s, he often preached in London to crowds of 1,500 people. Elias Keach was converted in the middle of a sermon he was preaching. And he died in 1701 when he was 34 years old. History teaches us that not all preachers are converted. Last week we sang the song, And Can It Be? 
Charles Wesley. He recounts his conversion like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Maybe you've heard the story of his brother John, John Wesley. He says that his heart was strangely warmed. In 1738, he opened his Bible at about 5 in the morning, and he came across these words from 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desire. He read those words, and then that evening, he reluctantly attended a a meeting in, in Aldersgate there in London, And someone read from Luther's preface to the epistle to Romans, to his commentary on the epistle to Romans. And at about 8.45 p.m. that evening, in the middle of somebody reading Luther's preface, something happened. He himself described, he said, while he was describing, that is the person reading and commenting on this um, work of Luther, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was was 13 years after John Wesley had been ordained into the Anglican priesthood. He'd already been a pastor for 13 years, and he found himself, found his heart strangely warmed in the middle of a Bible study. He would travel many times to the American colonies to preach. On one trip, he observed a group of Moravian Christians. They were Anabaptists from the region of what is now the Czech Republic. They were being persecuted at the time, and he noted that they were always employed, busy, always cheerful themselves, and in good humor with one another. And then he said that they adorned the gospel of our Lord in all things. Does that describe the American church? Adorning the gospel of our Lord in all things? Does it describe us as a church? Adorning the gospel of God, of our Lord, in all things. Does it describe you? This is the kind of Christianity that Paul was encouraging in Thessalonica. A Christianity with its hope firmly fixed on Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to kind of put it in park and sit for a bit on one verse. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 5. But I want to read the whole chapter again so that we can, um, I don't want us to lose context of, of what the Bible is telling us here. So there's just 10 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's read them all. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's stop here and pray. Father, what we need, I pray that you would give us today. I pray that you would feed us from your word, that we might behold wondrous things from your law, from your gospel. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you one question. Think about the stories that I told you, and let me ask you this question. What makes up genuine gospel ministry? What makes up a genuine gospel ministry? Elias Keach was a, a fraud when he started. He was, he was wearing the clothes, purposefully not believing in God. Getting at least a gig, preaching, making a little bit of money, pretending to be something he was not. The New Testament frequently calls out preachers of a false gospel. So, for example, in in the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And there are many such cases like that all throughout the epistles. Warnings of false teachers. But then we read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, we read this. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my punishment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed regardless of the motives of those doing the preaching. Should this be be our entire attitude toward, toward any gospel ministry? That it doesn't matter why he does it or or what he lives like as long as he is preaching the truth? If that's the case, then why does Paul give us in two different places character requirements? for elders, whose task it is to preach, teach, and guard the truth? Well, part of the answer to that is actually related in the, 
in the other tasks of elders, which is pastoring, shepherding the flock of God. First Peter chapter 5, Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And, and all of this is deeply connected to these commands. Listen to these commands. These are commands, by the way. These are not suggestions. They're commands. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul tells Timothy, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And he also says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul makes it abundantly clear throughout his writings that the gospel message requires an authentic messenger. Yeah, it's true. Some preach out of envy and praise God that he will use even that. He's promised that his word will not return to him void, but will accomplish that for which he sent it, he says in Isaiah. But this envious ministry is going to be short-lived, and it's almost certain to end in disaster. And so instead, we ought to look for evidence of a genuine gospel ministry. And the first evidence that we should see and this should be so obvious to us. But the first evidence that we should see here in verse 5 is that the gospel comes in word. Look at verse 5 again. Let me read 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake comes in word. This should, this should go without saying, right? But unfortunately, it real, really needs to be said. Any, any ministry, whether it's a church as a whole, um, or a specific pulpit ministry, or, or a counseling ministry, um, a youth ministry, a pregnancy care ministry, a food pantry any ministry that does not proclaim the gospel as of first importance is not a genuine gospel ministry. From time to time, even this morning, I will pray that any church, um, even around us, that refuses to preach the gospel, like outright refuses, no, we're not going to talk about that. Instead, I want to talk about the environment or something. Any, any church that refuses to preach the gospel, I pray that the Lord will remove their lampstand. That's from Revelation 2.5 where Jesus says to the Ephesians, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That means that they no longer get to be a church. The glory will have departed. Ezekiel 9 and 10. 
in Ezekiel, if you, if you read, I want to challenge you to read 9 and 10 again this week because it doesn't happen in an instant. The glory of God slowly makes its way away from the Holy of Holies, out, and we read it being at the, at the threshold, and then eventually it leaves. God leaves his people. The glory of God departs. When we pray that the Lord would remove its lampstand from its place, that means that that church will eventually wither and die because they're not preaching the gospel, because God is not with them. This is happening all over the place. Churches are dying. One of the reasons that churches are dying, not every church that is shrinking and dying, but one of the reasons that many churches are shrinking and dying is because they're not preaching the gospel. And God has left them. And to tell you a little secret, that's actually how we got this building. That's a different story. I don't pray these things lightly either because it could happen to us, and I try to say that while I'm praying this. And, and truthfully, uh, this is 2024 is our 200th anniversary as a church. Logansville uh, Christian Church originally was founded in 1824, um, established in 1824. History shows us that eventually that's going to happen to us. Eventually, this church will be no longer and some other church will come up in its place. But here's what we need to hold on to. Listen to this carefully. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, colon, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So in order for a ministry to be a genuine gospel ministry, the gospel must come in word. We have to speak, preach the gospel. We have to tell people about Jesus Christ that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day for our sins according to the scriptures. We've had to make this stand. I'll tell you that we've had to make this stand at the New Path Pregnancy Resource Centers where I serve on the board. There are pro-life Mormons, pro-life Roman Catholics, pro-life people who don't go to church anywhere, who would like to serve as client advocates, like to serve and minister in the ministry, but their so-called churches, by definition, preach another gospel. And to their consternation, we've had to tell them no, because the gospel is more important. And, And those are hard things to say. But the gospel is of first importance and we have to say it. And I haven't said this in a while. But you cannot be the gospel. You, you cannot be the gospel 
Now, I know usually when people say that, they mean something, even in this passage, um, something akin to the works of faith or labor of love. They, they want to they do uh, the work that they were saved to do. I know that that's what they mean, but words actually mean things, and the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. Romans chapter 10, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel must be proclaimed. And here in Thessalonica, that's exactly what happened. The gospel came to them in word. So together with Silas, or Silvanus, he calls him in verse 1, and Timothy, Paul brought, these three men brought the gospel message to them. He preached Christ crucified. And Eddie would also be very clear on this point. This isn't his word, this is God's word. He's bringing God's message to them. See, Paul will insist in other places that the message he brought was entrusted to him by Jesus Christ himself. So he will tell the Galatians, for example. He says, he starts the letter by saying this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He is an apostle because of Jesus Christ. And a few verses later, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's word, God's message, God's gospel. Even here in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Since the word that Paul and the others, Silvanus and Timothy, since it was not their own but was the Lord's, we can say that we only truly receive the scriptures, that is, accept them as truth, when we receive them as the word of God. So John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, he said, the Holy Scripture will never be of any service to us unless we are persuaded that God is the author of it. Therefore, the Holy Scripture will be lifeless, without force, until we know it is God who speaks in it and thereby reveals his will to man. See, to receive the Bible as the word of God is, is to bow before the sovereign authority of God. It, 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 it's simply because it is God's word, because it is God-breathed, as he will say in 2 Timothy. Sometimes people will accuse when we emphasize this, um, People will accuse us of worshiping the Bible instead of worshiping God. That our version of the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We can see this as a false charge once we understand that God spoke to us in the Bible. 
that he has revealed himself to us through his word, that he gave it to us in order to teach us how to live before him in faith. Look again at this statement. Verses, let me read four and five again. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is, verses four and five are connected here. That means it's connected to the the doctrine of election, which we talked about last week. One of the biggest criticisms people have toward those who who hold this doctrine is that we don't care about evangelism. If God chose me before the beginning of time, as Ephesians 1 explicitly says, if God chose us before the beginning of time, then what's the point in telling people about Christ? Because he's already told them, we don't need to do anything. Paul's saying that verse 5 proves verse 4. See, God chooses, he uses, he, when he chooses, he uses means to accomplish his purposes. So how do we know that God chose you? Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, how do I know that God chose you? Because we preached and you believed. That's what he says. But he lays out some other evidences of genuine gospel ministry as well. So one commentary um, uh, put verse 5 together like this. And I think this is helpful for us to see Paul's emphasis here in verse 5. We could put it this way. Our gospel was not among you in word alone, but also in power, both in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. So I wanted to read verse 5 that way to, to show you that word, not in word only, word is in contrast, so to speak, to power, and that the Holy Spirit and the conviction are modifying power and not in contrast with the word. But even as I say that, contrast isn't the right word to describe that. Being in contrast isn't quite right. See, Paul is not in any way putting down the preached word. In fact, that's the starting point he is saying. Um, He's saying that it's clear that the Thessalonian saints that they were chosen by God because not only did Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy preach the word of the gospel to them and they accepted it, they believed it, but the gospel also came to them in power, he says. And so the mark of a genuine gospel ministry is that it comes in power. It comes in power. Again, look at verse 5 again. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Well, the first thing that I want to point out, and I'm really stressing this, is that Scripture, the Word of God, the gospel has power. The gospel brings power with it. These things are actually not, um, you really can't separate these things. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome also because, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. Not long before Paul arrived here in Thessalonica, he'd been in Philippi. 
When he arrived in Philippi, he met some women, including Lydia. And Acts, the book of Acts as it recounts all of this, calls Lydia a worshiper of God. And when she heard Paul's preaching, Acts 16 says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then she would go on to be baptized. Lydia believed the word of Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit working in her heart. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the preached word of the gospel. But this says that the gospel came to them in power in the Holy Spirit. Paul is preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. It came to them in power, it says. What does that mean? What does that mean that Paul was preaching in, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, in Paul's case, it could be uh, a couple of things. First, during certain times of the Bible, including Paul's day, namely when um, new revelation was being given, we read of the Lord working powerfully in the miraculous and so at times in the scripture when we see heavy miraculous or signs and wonders um, activity, it's, it's during the times when new revelation is being given, the time of Moses and Aaron, when the, when the book of the law, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch was being given. You see a lot of uh, signs and wonders, a lot of miracles during that time. Then we see miracles during the times of the prophets, especially Elisha and Elijah. We see them really increase in the Gospels when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, when he is here ministering among men. And then during the ministries of the apostles after Christ's ascension. But if you notice, especially if you read through the book of Acts and, and even in their letters, the miraculous or emphasis on the miraculous, emphasis on signs and wonders really starts to decrease as time goes on. This kind, of, this kind of miraculous power was displayed. The purpose for it was to authenticate the message, God's message, and his messengers. Hebrews says this in chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 puts it like this. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels or messengers proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that salvation, it goes on to say this, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The message of salvation, God's word was given to us and when it was given, signs and wonders were given at those times in order to say, this is my word. So it's possible, it's possible that some miracles, some displays of the Holy Spirit's power had happened at Thessalonica. But I need to point out that, that there's no scripture that explicitly says that there are signs and wonders here. Um, rather, this was clearly, and the emphasis is on, a Holy Spirit-changed life. 
And so the emphasis then needs to shift in our minds away from the power of the Holy Spirit to do signs and wonders to the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the dead to life. Paul is emphasizing the Holy Spirit penetrating the hearts and minds of those who hear the word of the gospel. Paul's point here is that an evidence that God um, uh, had graciously chosen them, verse 4, was clear to him because not only did they hear the word, but they also experienced the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Let me try to help you understand what this looks like by illustrating this with an Old Testament passage. See, I'm saying that the power of the Holy Spirit here is the reality of Ezekiel's prophetic vision. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25, 25 to 29, middle of 29, we see the promise of the gospel. And it's worded like this. Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And then turn over a page to chapter 37. This is the illustration that I want us to see. So in 36, we have the promise of the gospel. 37 is the illustration of the power of the Holy Spirit working in those who hear and believe in the gospel. This is what happens. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley And behold, they were very dry. They're dead. These people are dead and gone. The only thing left are dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, he's preaching, as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them 
Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off therefore prophesy and say to them thus says the Lord God behold I will open your graves cause you to raise from your graves O my people and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves O my people and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and you will know that I am the Lord I have spoken I will do it declares the Lord. And when Paul arrived at Thessalonica and prophesied, preached the gospel, proclaimed the good news, the Spirit entered into those people and they became alive. That's what happened to you. The moment you believed, when you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your dry, the dead, Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, dried up bones in a valley. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before that we should walk in them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 there are absolutely true of those dead, dry bones. This is exactly what happens to all who believe, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that accomplishes this. But he's not done. Because in addition to the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel also came to them in full conviction. And we know from the, from the next sentence, there's a, there's a thread that begins there and, and continues into verse 6 and beyond, which we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. We know that this conviction is the, is the power of those who are preaching. This is what Paul will come back to in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. They were convicted of these things. And so Paul proclaimed this. The gospel came to the Thessalonians with the power of Paul's conviction and and his boldness in God. Paul preached with full conviction, but not in himself, not in his own wisdom, not in his own oratory skills, 
In fact, some of his critics would say of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. But the power of Paul's conviction was the truth of what he preached. He believed this. He believed in the one of whom he preached. He was sincere. Just listen to what he will tell Timothy many, many years later. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you we need to have that conviction. I, I know in whom I have believed. The gospel message was entrusted to Paul by Jesus Christ himself. And Paul was determined to guard it, to preach it, and to entrust it to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. Now, in some sense... It's odd to leave this here, to stop here, because their full conviction, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the, the Thessalonians saw this, they knew it was a conviction that ran in their blood, so to speak. They understood this about these men. They saw this conviction, and they imitated it, and passed this conviction on to all of Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia, that's Greece, and even as verse 8 says, Everywhere, everybody knew that they had this conviction. And so we'll pick it up there next week. But you can quickly and clearly see that an evidence that God had chosen them was seen in the fact that Paul's conviction of the gospel became their conviction too. And that's powerful. They genuinely believed. They genuinely were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they genuinely went out and made disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. The mark of a genuine gospel ministry is one that holds fast to the word of Christ, is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and has a true conviction, I know in whom I have believed. Elias Keach was a pretender until God saved him in the middle of his own sermon. John Wesley was a pretender until, until God converted him of a middle, in the middle of a Bible study of a group that was growing around the world, the Methodists, that he founded. And in the lives of each of them, 
we can definitively say because of the lives that they lived after those moments, they received the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit and with much conviction. And then I mentioned the powerful example of the Christian witness that John Wesley observed in the Moravian Christians. Their lives were witnesses to having been chosen by God, by faith, and so they adorned the gospel of our Lord in all things. And so this is the application today. May the same be said of us. May the same be said of us. That when people look at us, they will say, I know that they were chosen by God because they received the word of God. They believed the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. May the same be said of us. Pray with me. Lord, that's our prayer. That this would be said of us as a church, us as our families, individually even. That we know that these, the brethren here at Redemption Bible Church are loved by God, that he has chosen us because the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Lord, may we become imitators of Paul as he is of Christ. May we be a people who are always abounding in the work of the Lord with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to the table, Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come as a people who are thankful because you didn't have to choose us, but you did in your grace and in your mercy. And so, Lord, we come to celebrate, to eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, and we come with joyful hearts. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you that you have sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.